Good morning and welcome to each one of you. Last number of times I've preached, I've been uh, following the life of God's prophet Elisha through the book of 2 Kings. I plan to continue that this morning in 2 Kings chapter 13. And this morning will bring us, this morning's passage will bring us to the, the end of Elisha's time here on earth. <clears throat> you know, the books of, of 1 and 2 Kings are a written record of God's faithfulness to His people. It's a covenant history written to explain to the Jewish exiles why Israel and Judah were conquered, why they had gone into exile. And it's because they were not faithful to their covenant with God. I believe they're also here for future generations to see the record of God's faithfulness to His people. It's for us to see how God was faithful, <clears throat> even when His people were not. So I'm turning to 2 Kings chapter 13 this morning. And there's a pattern in, in the books of Kings that the writer gives a spiritual assessment of each king. And we see that here in the beginning of, of 2 Kings 13. And God's assessment, the assessment of that king is separate from the king's political achievements. Some of these kings were achieved a lot of things politically. Big things happened, but they're kind of passed over. And maybe they did a lot of good things politically, and the spiritual assessment, the overview of his life is, and he did evil. It's looking at what really counts. The assessment is based on how the king led his people in being faithful to God and following the covenant, being faithful to God and not turning away from him. So in verses 1 and 2, we have the assessment of King Jehoiaz, king of Israel, and the assessment is, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. I'm going to jump in at uh, verse 3. I'd like to read through verse 7 and then pause. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So Jehoaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of these Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he left the army of Jehoaz, only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at thrashing. Now pause there. And if you notice, in verse 3, it was all their days of two, two Syrian kings. They were delivered into the hand of Hazael and his son. Two generations of Syrians dominated Israel. Because of Israel's sin, because of their unfaithfulness to God. 
thing I find so encouraging is in verse 4, that here you have a king who the summary of his life is, and he did evil. And you see in verse 4, he cries out to God. He pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened. The Lord listened to an evil king. When he turned to him, as soon as this king turned toward God and asked for help, God was there waiting. God was listening, waiting to respond to that king when he turned to him. That gives hope for me. That gives hope for everyone. God is there waiting for me to turn to him. You know, I think God, well, God not only was waiting, but he responded. Verse 5 tells us he sent a deliverer. We're not told who that deliverer was. We're not told what the deliverance looked like, really. We don't need to know that, but we know God responded. And he sent deliverance to Israel. How does Israel respond? It's the pattern we often see as you read through the Old Testament. Their repentance, their turning to God was short-lived, and they continued on in the sin they had been in. I think verse 7 is important for us to, uh, to understand, looking at, it's, it's important background for us to get before we look at the rest of chapter 13. Verse 7, and so he left the army of Jehoaz, only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, because the king of Syria had destroyed the rest of them. 10 chariots. Now, to put that in perspective, King Ahab, when he was king, he mustered 2,000 chariots and all these foot soldiers to go to war. He had 2,000. We're down to 10 in verse 7. So that's the situation that Israel is in. Syria to the east of them has dominated them for two generations and decimated their military. There's not much left. Hope is gone. So keep that in mind as we look at the rest of, of chapter 13. To summarize verses 8 to 13, those verses tell us that Jehoahaz died and his son Joash becomes king. He inherits what's left of his father's tiny army. And the summary of his reign, sadly, like his father's is, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So, jumping in at verse 14, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. Here we, Elisha comes back into the picture. I'll just mention one thing here before we read it. Um, some commentators believe that Elisha is inserted here again because Possibly he was, possibly the deliverance the Lord sent to Israel in verse 5 came through Elisha. Scripture doesn't tell us that. Uh, that's what some people believe. I don't know what the case is. I found that interesting. So here's Elisha again. He's now an old man. Verse 14, Elisha had become sick 
with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. So he took them. He said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elisha died, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was when they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. And Hazael king of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to him and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Hazael king of Syria died. Then Ben-Hadad his son reigned in his place. And Jehoash the son of Jehoaz recap recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad the son of Hazael the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz his father by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. So here's Elisha on his deathbed. He's sick with the, the sickness that he will die from. You know, Elisha prophesied for a period, I believe, of more than, more than 60 years. But for the previous number of years, um, there is no record of what God was doing through him. We don't have, it's silent. Scripture is silent on Elisha for quite a few years previous to this passage today. You know, there are more miracles recorded in Scripture that were done through Elisha than through any other person except Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and here's Elisha on his deathbed. I wonder, when I was studying this chapter, I wondered, did Elisha ever think about his predecessor? Think about Elijah, how Elijah, how the end of Elijah's life. You remember what happened with Elijah? Elijah knew. God had told him that he was going to take him. And he knew he would be taken to heaven, and it happened as he and Elisha were walking together. And chariots of fire, horses of fire came between them. And Elijah was carried up to heaven in a whirlwind in chariots and horses of fire. And Elisha watched this. And here's Elisha years later. He's now an old man. He served God faithfully. And I wonder if he thought about how 
different the end of his life was looking than Elijah. In contrast here to Elijah, here, here Elisha is a weak old man. He's sick, and this sickness went with his, with his death. You've got two men who both served God faithfully. Their lives were similar in some ways, in that they, they both were God's prophet, God's spokesperson in Israel. Elijah was a man of the wilderness. He was often in the wilderness alone. He would come into civilization with pronouncements of judgment and then go back out in the wilderness. Elisha lived in the city, in the capital, close to the king. Different people, different setting, and their time on earth ends differently. But I think God knows what's best for each person. And it's probably important that we don't compare with each other. The king cries out in verse 14, My father, my father. He's showing, it's a, he's showing respect to the, to the prophet, seeing him as, as his superior. You know, what he said to Elisha is really what, it's about the same thing as what Elisha said when Elijah was taken up into heaven. The horses and chariots of Israel. The king recognized that Elisha's death was a, a national loss. He recognized that God had worked through Elisha to defend Israel in the past. I wonder if the king felt the loss more keenly because he pictured his tiny army, his ten chariots. You know, because the king showed respect for God's prophets, God gave him the opportunity to stop looking at his tiny army. God gave him the opportunity to look to God in faith. He gave him the possibility of victory over his enemies. You know, I'd often read this, uh, this story in the past, and I'd look at it and say, why was God so hard on on the king here, why didn't he give him more victory? The king, he must not have understood. However, in studying this, I believe the king knew when Elisha put his hands on the king's hands, he was indicating that what he is about to do is full of spiritual symbolism. It's, he's, it symbolized God's strength through Elisha would be enabling the king for what was to follow. For what he's telling him to do. God was giving him the strength for it. And he has him shoot toward Syria. Now shooting toward the enemy, or shooting, sending an arrow over into the enemy territory was an ancient way of declaring war. If I were in the king's shoes, I would have probably felt like saying, What? With my army? Do you know what I have left? Have you forgotten? Maybe your memory doesn't work anymore. I've got ten chariots, and these guys have dominated me for how long? But notice what Elisha says. He declares the arrow of the Lord's deliverance 
And he promised him victory at Aphek, at one city, Samaria. And then he tells him to take more arrows and strike the ground. Clearly here he's offering the king more victories. So he obediently takes the arrows and he strikes the ground three times. Now if by shooting one arrow, God promised, him, promised you victory in one place, and if you believed that God would give you a victory for every arrow, what would you do? I think if you believe that, you're going to empty the quiver. Let's get them all out. Let's, let's send all the arrows. But Joash is going through the motions. He doesn't really believe that God would give him the victory based on his act of faith with these arrows, or I believe he would have shot them all. The king's so busy looking at his own weakness, his own inability, which it was true, he couldn't handle it on his own. But he's so busy looking at his own weakness that he doesn't recognize what the all-powerful God is offering him. So here you have an elderly prophet in a dying body who has stronger faith than the young king who is young and strong in body. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4.16, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. We have the possibility, even as our bodies age, of becoming stronger in the inner man. Being strengthened by God inside, even as our bodies grow weaker and we're not able to do what we'd like to do. God offered the king complete victory over the Syrians. We know that because in verse 19, Elisha said that if he had used those arrows, then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. His incomplete faith resulted in incomplete victory. And in verse 25, Israel's historian carefully records that God did exactly what he said he would. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. In, in his mercy, God had brought the king to a place of weakness. You know, God was doing exactly what he said he would. He had warned them that if they don't follow the covenant, if they turn away from God and they follow other gods, that he will, he will allow their enemies to, to dominate. And so God did allow that to happen. Brought the king to a place of weakness so that he could see how much he needed God. When thinking about being in a place of weakness, I'd like to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 briefly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Verses 1 to 6, we have Paul the Apostle is telling 
how he was caught up into paradise, and he saw things that he can't even describe. And in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn of, in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest in me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. It's called. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh is. And I think that's for a good reason. We don't know exactly what that was. But many people have been able to identify with this because we don't know exactly what it was. It was some physical difficulty, weakness. And we're told it's a it was a messenger of Satan. Satan wanted to use this thorn in the flesh to, to discourage Paul, to wear him down, to hinder him in his work for the Lord. But God is infinitely greater than Satan, and he used that thorn for Paul's good. He used it to keep Paul humble, to keep him from, as it says in verse 7, lest I be exalted above measure. So God used it for Paul's good, even though Satan intended it for evil. You know, Paul wanted that thorn removed. Wouldn't we all? If you had a thorn in your flesh, sometimes when I'm mowing and I brush by a little too close, don't realize it's a rose bush, it'll catch in my arm and I, I have, you know how rose, rose thorns, I can tell you, have a big hooked thorn. And they hook into your arm, sink to the, all the way up, and then break off. And so you end up with three or four of them in there. I don't want to leave them there. I want them out. Uh, I don't want them staying because they're painful. Paul didn't want thorn either. And he asked God to remove it three times. However, God knew that Paul was better off with that thorn. And so he did something better than removing it. He gave Paul the grace to bear the thorn, to have that, that weakness. Lenski says, the phrase, my strength is made perfect, is, uh, is literally, it's brought to its finish in weakness. My strength is brought to its finish in weakness. It's the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he cried out, it is finished. The very same word. To quote Lenski, the Lord says that divine power is brought to the end of its work in weakness. When it has brought us to the point where we are in utter weakness, its task is finished. It has then shaped us into the perfect tool for itself. When I realize how desperately I need God, that I can't do it on my own. I turn to Him. That's when, as Paul said in verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. Then 
I am in the position where God can work in me, through me. We don't like being weak. We don't enjoy being weak. It doesn't feel good. We would rather be strong and able. I can handle this. But where God needs us is dependent on Him. Going back to 2 Kings 13. I'm going to jump in at verse 20. Read verses 20 and 21. Then Elisha died, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was, as they were burying a man, that it that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Can you picture this? <laughs> Imagine. Imagine the shock and the joy of his friends when the man they're burying, they put into the tomb, and he jumps to his feet, and I assume runs with them to get away from the raiders. How shocked would you be? Why, why did God perform this miracle? I wonder. Have you considered that? I don't think anything like this takes place anywhere else in Scripture. I've, I wasn't able to find it or think of it. Where coming in contact, the dead man's bones, someone is revived, brought back to life. Jewish tradition says that this man lived to be an old man and had many children. So why did God choose to perform this miracle of resurrection? You know, there, I don't know. I can't, uh, I can't tell you exactly why God did that. I have a couple of thoughts, a couple of ideas. Throughout Elijah and Elisha's ministries, they were calling God's people to leave the worship of Baal and other false gods and to serve the living God who was in a covenant relationship with them. David Roper says, maybe the message was, a dead prophet of the Lord has more power than a live prophet of Baal. That's one option. Was it a reminder that God would fulfill the prophecies of Elisha was known as the man of God, even after he had died. I think that's true. Was it also a message of hope for the nation of Israel and for us that God can bring life where there is death? God can. He can bring life where there is death. You know, God had brought the king to a place of weakness. And he had brought Elisha to a place of weakness. Elisha watched what happened to Elijah and how God took him up. And yet here's Elisha, an old man. Elisha was dependent on God and he had more zeal for what God wanted to do than the king did.
The king's lack of faith limited his victories. And I have to ask myself, in what area am I weak? Where's my weakness? In what area are my limited resources not up to the job? And I know it. Where don't I know what to do? I have no idea. Is it possible that God is reminding me to turn to Him in repentance, believing that He will work in me and through me, that He can bring new life the areas that are dead? What victory am I missing out on because I'm depending on my own limited resources instead of God's unlimited strength? Would you stand, please? Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord, I thank You that You work in us. When we turn to You, Lord, may we turn to You daily, moment by moment, walk with You. Recognize our need our desperate need of you. Thank you, Lord, that when we do that, you meet those needs. You meet our weakness with your strength so that you can be seen at work in us. Lord, I pray that as we go from here this week, you would be seen in each of our lives, that you would have your way with us. Lord, I thank you for the food that's prepared downstairs. I ask that you would bless it. You would give us strength from it. And we want to use that for you. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here. And you're dismissed.